Let's pull. Is that yours? Oh, that's Maria's. Okay. Morning again. Morning. Good to see you all. I've got my glasses, everything ready, Bible. I had to stretch the pulpit a little bit with this rod. I'll put a rod in here so I can actually fit more, more stuff. Yeah, so it makes it a little bit easier. I keep asking Pastor Frank to get me a bigger pulpit, but he got me a small one again. <laughs> so we are going to be um, we're going to be going through um, that passage that um, that Brother Kess um, uh, read this morning, because the question that we want to be answering this morning is is the question: What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Um, and it's a, it's a fundamental question to be asking. Um, and the answer for the question, there's, there's no greater place to find that answer than in John chapter 3. We all know the famous um, verse that so many people quote in John 3.16. So we all know that. We'll get through to that next week. Um, this morning, however, we're going to be looking at the introduction to that point. So before we start, we'll open in a word of prayer and ask the Lord to just bless this time. Father, we thank you for the opportunity, dear Lord, to preach your word, to share the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to help us have a greater understanding of the word of God and that those changes, dear Lord, that you promise will make within our lives, dear Father, will be made by an understanding of your word as it creates that growth within us, within our own lives, until finally, dear Lord, it returns back to where you sent it. We thank you, Father, for it. We just ask you, dear Lord, that you'll bless our time together this morning. Amen. Okay, the question, what is the gospel? You know, it's a, um, the gospel is an English word. It's only ever found in the New Testament. It's not found anywhere else in the, uh, in the Bible. It's found only in the New Testament. And when you look at it historically, it's a compound word. It, it actually started off as God spell. God spell. The meaning of that word has been a little bit confusing over the years. Because it seemed to have meant, uh, in, its, in its use, um, God's story. So the original way of using that word was as God's story, referring to the entirety of the Bible as the gospel. It comes from the Greek word evangelion, which actually means good tidings from what we can understand. So there we have also that reference to the word gospel as good tidings or good news. So it changed from God spell to eventually gospel and we have that, um, that compound and that use of the word. Today, um, the world uses that word as uh, um, that which is absolutely true. Isn't it interesting, isn't it? So the, word, the world uses that, well, you know, I'm, I'm telling you the gospel truth, mate, you know. Uh, and um, so they always refer to it that way. I work in the construction industry and we have a construction industry Bible you know, called the uh, the building code, the, the yeah, the building code, and um, and they refer to that as you know that's the truth for the construction industry, that's the Bible for the industry. So, in the world's terms, we use the word gospel to mean absolute truth, something that's that's absolutely true. In the church, we refer to it as that which um, uh, is that about Jesus Christ, who he is, why he came, why he died, why he rose. Um, so there's no question it's, it's indeed good news. It's, it's glad tidings. Uh, but it also tells the story, God's story, about man, about his origin, his fall, and his redemption. So all of that is contained within the gospel. 
in the passage that we're looking at here, the first point, I've only got three points this morning, don't get too excited, it doesn't mean it's shorter. First point is God reveals the heart. God reveals the heart. And we're looking at just those first few verses. And it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's probably a good idea to have an introduction. See, who, who is Nicodemus? Who is Nicodemus? We, we, we're told already in the first part of the text that he was a man of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were that sect in, um, in Israel who stuck to the exact teachings of the law and they encouraged people to do the same thing. Okay, so the first thing was that he was a Pharisee, one of the rulers essentially within Israel, and that gets to the next point, which is he is a ruler of the Jews. This is really interesting because there's two ways that that can be taken um, within the passage, and both of them are actually true. The first is it's an explanatory clause. In other words, the Pharisees were the rulers of the Jews, so you can easily read it that way. He was a a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. But also what we discover when we read on in the, um, in the Gospel account that it was an additional clause or an additional description of, of Nicodemus particularly because we also find that he was part of a group of individuals called the Sanhedrin, which was a, um, a governing body that came together. You're still in John chapter 3. Move forward a few chapters to chapter 7. Chapter 7, have a look at verse um, 45. It says there, Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, so you've got, you've got three groups here, okay? So you've got, then came the officers to the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they said unto them, Why have ye not brought him? And the officers answered, Never man spake like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him, and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went into his own house. So you've got a group of individuals here, a group of individuals who are actually the judiciary of Israel. They are the governing body of Israel. They are the one that set forth the rules and the government as far as Israel was concerned. They are the judiciary. Okay? That's the Sanhedrin. So Nicodemus was not only a Pharisee, but he was also a ruler of the Jews. Okay, so we've got that understanding of him. Um, but then we've got something else. We notice something else about him, and that is that he came to Jesus by night. He came to Jesus by night. Um, why did he come to Jesus by night? Why wouldn't he come to Jesus in the open light of day? We could probably speculate a little bit on why 
but this is really, really early in Jesus' ministry. So Jesus had only just begun. We're only in the third chapter here. And, but there had been a question clearly arising within Nicodemus's mind to approach the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why he came to him. But he came to Jesus by night. And, and I'd probably put to you that there perhaps was a certain fear of the Jews. Now, when I, sp- when I speak about fear of the Jews, it's a phrase that's used in Scripture. Um, but the fear of the Jews is not necessarily referred to just the people, but the ruling part of the Jews. Um, again, you're still in uh, John. You can turn to, turn to the 20th chapter. Actually, where were we? No, sorry, sorry, go back to the seventh, back to the seventh one. We were there before. That's right. You'll notice something really interesting here because, again, it's a phrase that's used. And um, you'll see it's a point where in verse, in verses seven and eight, where the brothers, the brethren of our Lord Jesus Christ is actually um, suggesting for him to go up to go up to to the feast. And you'll see in verse 8, he says, Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. That's an important word there, by the way, yet. I go not up yet. Okay? Because modern translations at the moment have actually removed that word and they essentially make a liar of Jesus Christ because he goes up. Here he says he's not going to go up, but he says he's not going up yet. The modern translations have taken that word out for one reason or another, I don't know. But the word is clearly there. Um, and then it goes on, and if you go to um, verse, verse 12, there was much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said, he is a good man, others said, nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. So there was already still at that time a, a certain fear of the Jews. They didn't want to speak openly of him. Now if you go to chapter 20... Okay, we see this particular time here in chapter 20 where Jesus had died, okay, at this point, and we already know that by chapter 20 he'd already risen from the dead. And we see in verse 19, verse 19, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, this is when the Lord had already risen, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. In the previous chapter, 19, and this is where I get this understanding because Nicodemus is involved now. In the previous chapter, in chapter 19, have a look at verse um, verse 38. Verse 38. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of mirth and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. So what we see here is Nicodemus's early visit perhaps in the evening might have been in the evening and at night because of fear of the Jews. 
But what we can certainly see is that he'd remained somewhere in touch with the history of our Lord Jesus Christ right up until his death. We see him defending Jesus in amongst the Sanhedrin in chapter 7. And then we see him together with only one other individual um, uh, coming to Jesus and actually finding the place where Jesus would be buried, helping, no doubt, Joseph roll the stone onto the tomb, into the sepulchre. Um, and incredible to see Nicodemus change in this, in this particular way. And that's really, really important to, um, to understand when we're looking at this particular passage. So I turn back to chapter 3. John chapter 3. The point of the message about God knowing the heart. Something really interesting occurs here. He says here, first, first Nicodemus acknowledges... Um, the authority of Jesus. He says, We know that thou art a teacher for come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Yet, here we have the Lord cut straight to a point that he seemed to have an insight of, uh, respecting possibly the heart behind the inquiry. Okay, because you'll notice that how he answers doesn't seem to line up with the question or the the comment that was made by Nicodemus. He says to him straight away, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The two statements don't seem to really correlate. One doesn't seem to follow the other. It's almost like Nicodemus didn't actually say anything and Jesus comes out with this statement somewhat out of the blue. Nicodemus didn't seem to be inquiring about the kingdom of God, yet this is exactly the response that Jesus gives him, likely knowing possibly Nicodemus's deepest desire. Possibly knowing his deepest desire, and that's not unusual. What we find is that God is the one who knows the heart, and his concern is always with the heart. Some examples we've got in Matthew chapter 9, and he says, And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? The apostles also acknowledged that God knows the heart. So when it came time to choosing someone to replace Judas, who by transgression fell, they needed to choose someone to take their place. And they actually prayed in Acts chapter 1 and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen. And they've cast lots for them and God had chosen which of the two because it was a concern of the, of the heart. We also see Jesus concerned about the lack of sincerity of those people that are around. Uh, he confirmed the words of God that were spoken through Isaiah and he said, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoureth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So Jesus knows the hearts. God knows the hearts. You know, it's, it's even what's in our heart that hinders our prayer and how we pray. What's in our heart. In Psalm 66, 18, it says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I regard iniquity in my heart. Well, you know we can pray from the heart. Did you know that? Do you know you don't have to pray audibly for the Lord to hear? You know, it's, it's interesting. I've, I've, I've heard of some 
full-on charismatics and everything, praying really loud, thinking that the louder that they pray, the more God will hear and listen. It doesn't seem to work that way. God actually hears the heart. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 24. There's an interesting passage there. Genesis chapter 24. You can remember at this particular time in history, we have Abraham searching for a... um, a wife, a spouse for his son. And he sends his servant to, uh, to look for a, uh, for a spouse. And in verse uh, 24, Genesis chapter 24, look at uh, verse 42. And this, is, and this is the servant speaking. And he says, I came this day unto the well and said, okay, so you notice he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if now... Thou do prosper my way which I go. Behold, I stand by the well of water, and it shall come to pass that when the virgin cometh forth to draw water, and I say to her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water of thy pitcher to drink. And she say to me, Both drink thou, and I will also draw for thy camels. Let the same be the woman whom the Lord hath appointed out for my master's son. And before I had done speaking in mine heart... Behold, Rebekah came forth with her pitcher on her shoulder, and she went down to the well and drew water. And I said unto her, Let me drink, I pray thee. Stop there. So these things that he was saying, what he spoke, his prayer, was a prayer that he uttered from the heart. And who can forget that beautiful prayer that we have in 1 Samuel where, where Hannah prayed. Remember that? Where she's at the temple or by the temple there, and she's praying, but... but the Bible says that no, no words came out of her mouth. It says she spake in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought that she had been drunken. You know? And then she, then she said to him, no, I haven't been drunken. And the, and the text where it says in verse 15, a couple of verses later, she poured out her soul before the Lord. And it was all done within her heart. You know, on one part, we, we love the notion that God hears our heart. He knows our heart. He knows our heart's deepest desire. That's really important when you struggle in your walk with the Lord. Because, you know, when Paul spoke about doing that which he would not, you know, um, and not doing that which he would, in other words, the things that he wants to do, he doesn't do, but the things that he doesn't want to do, that he does, the Lord knows his heart. And he knows our heart. And that's why he gives us grace. That's why that grace is given to us. But also care needs to be taken, doesn't it? So when we're thinking things within our heart and those things are evil, we need to check those things. We need to repent of those things. We need to ask the Lord's forgiveness for those things and for those thoughts that rise up within our hearts. Especially among brethren. Really, really, really important among brethren. Right? Remember that we are the witnesses of Christ. We, the love that we have one for another is how we witness to those who don't know Christ about Christ. Okay, So care needs to be always taken with your own words, what you're thinking within your own heart. Give always the benefit of the doubt. Okay, So what we see here is that the heart of man is what concerns the Lord. It's the heart that believeth unto righteousness, the Bible says. It's the heart that seeks after God. It's the heart that confesses Christ. It's the heart that believes the gospel. And it's the heart that came to Jesus by night in this passage. And it's your heart 
that Jesus desires to quicken to eternal life if you don't know him at this time. The second point is that Jesus reveals the way. Back to John chapter 3. We see here in verse 4, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Stop there. So the passage before us begins with a question from Nicodemus, and it's not an illogical question. You know, it's a fair question to ask. Um, he, he's, he's asking the question that springs into all of our minds. I remember before I was a believer, I heard about these born-agains, you know. Uh, who are these born-agains? How can they be born again, you know? Um, it was a question that I didn't have an answer to, and it's a question that Nicodemus obviously was, was, uh, was struggling with that answer that came from the Lord. Jesus gives to Nicodemus the clearest condition for entrance into heaven that any man can have. It's the clearest condition for entrance into heaven. It's not one of many options, but one condition alone. This isn't, this isn't um, all roads leading to Rome if you're in a particular city in Italy and you're on a particular road. It's not like that. It's not, there are many trails to the top of Mount Fuji if you want to have a really good view of Japan. Okay? This is one. There is only one way into the kingdom of God, one way to eternal life. And Jesus makes it plain and he says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To which Nicodemus asks in the only way he knows how, from a perspective of earthly things. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? To most Christians, even today, the new birth is a side issue. Um, they turn away the notion that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's, it's one of the rare things spoken about today. Um, yet without it, it's that very, very issue that hinders heaven. There are many Christians who have got the Christian clothes on who are not born again, who are not changed as a new person, a new creature. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, in the years that led up to the revivals in England and in the USA in the 1700s, it was the same issue. The new birth was something that wasn't really spoken of a great deal. Then you have the lifting up of men like um, George Whitefield, who preached of the new birth. And he preached to thousands, tens of thousands in the open air. Matter of fact, in one message that he preached in Scotland, it was estimated to be 100,000 people there. So imagine the MCG packed and George Whitefield preaching. Imagine that. Benjamin Franklin, who heard George Whitefield and listened to him, they actually became friends and they communicated one with another. He actually testifies and said, I heard Whitefield's voice from a mile's distance. And that was the days before we had, you know, um, um, audio and equipment to be able to amplify our own voices. It seems that God has the ability to be able to amplify his gospel, you know. But George Whitefield preached about 
the new birth. He went through the United States. He went through England. He preached to the poor. He also preached to aristocracy. And he preached and he said, ye must be born again. Ye must be born again. It was a continual theme throughout his teaching and his, and his preaching. I remember when um, I, was in, uh, I was in Sunbury here and I was speaking to a young man who owns a popular business here in Sunbury. And, um, and he was telling me how he had a pastor, a local pastor, come in and, um, and bless his business, you know. And he was then telling me about all the good things that he'd been doing, all the, um, you know, he's, he's really involved in, uh, you know, donating uh, money to different causes and helping and setting up different, um, different events and different things um, to be able to donate money to, you know. And, um, and I said to him, yeah, but you must be born again. I didn't really say much else. I just simply said, you must be born again. And he just stopped. He stopped talking and he looked at me so seriously. I'll never forget it, you know. And he goes, he goes to me, oh, I can't, you know, I, I, you know, I, can't, I can't ever get to that, to, like, you know, I can't quote the Bible like you do. That's all I said, though. I didn't quote the Bible. I didn't say anything more than that. I just simply said, the Bible says you must be born again, you know. And it really stopped him to think about it. You can do all the good works, you can do all the things, but none of that will give you credibility before the Lord. The Bible says that all our, all our works are like filthy rags to God. It's not what we do. It has to be a new birth. It has to be a change that happens within our own hearts. And I told him that. I said to him, look, you know, the Bible actually says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I explained to him the spiritual work of God to all whose hearts will believe the gospel. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Every man is born physically. Yeah? Would you agree? Yeah? We're all born physically? Good. I'm glad you agree. That's one thing that we can agree on. We're all born of the flesh. The Bible says we're born of water. An interesting phrase, because that seems to be exactly what breaks before a woman goes into labour. It's what triggers labour. So we're all born of water. We are all born of the flesh. That which is of the flesh is flesh. Okay? But the Bible here says, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So there's no such thing as a Christian who's not born again. No such thing. No, not su no such thing. It's, um, it's what it is to be born again. It's what the Bible says to be in Christ. Jesus goes on to say, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. He says, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the word, the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. You know, it's a work that comes from a destination unknown to us before it arrives, like the wind. Right? Before it arrives, we have no idea where it's come from. We can hear the sound of it, but we don't know where it's coming from. Just as we can sense the wind through our hearing, we can't tell where it comes or where its destination is, so too is this mysterious work of God upon everyone that is born of the Spirit. That which... That we must be born again is plain in Scripture. Okay, would you agree? That we must be born again is plain. That's what it says. That we can truly understand how it happens is a mystery. I don't know how it happens. 
We don't know how it happens. What is certain is that it changes our lives completely. It changes our lives completely. See, we believe it because it says it, but not necessarily because we understand it. And Jesus gives this cryptic sort of explanation, basically saying to us, it's a mystery how it comes. What we can know is that it tells of a new nature. Our old nature, also known as our old man, is crucified with Christ, the Bible says in Romans 6.6. 6. And it says that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. A true change has occurred. Not, not only a, It's not just a wiping of the slate. Okay? It's not just making everything clean again. Okay? But something else has happened. You know, yes, Jesus indeed gave his life as a ransom for us, Matthew chapter 20. Yes, Jesus truly was made to be sin for us, he who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And yes, it's true that a legal transaction has occurred. Our sin and filth exchanged for his righteousness and glory. More has occurred more has occurred we ourselves are changed we're born anew no longer dead in trespasses and sin but but alive in newness of life we've changed we've changed the desires that we had we no longer have you know the things that we desired uh, in the past as a pig wallowing in mud we no longer want to be that way we want to be clean we would run from the commandments of God and we would excuse ourselves that they don't exist. Now our whole heart's desire is to follow them, to obey them, to trust in them and to believe in them and to live our lives accordingly. So being born again isn't a feeling, okay? It's something that transforms your very life. It's what makes a persecutor of Christians to become the greatest evangelist in history, Paul the Apostle. It's what made plain men preach with boldness leaving their own lives behind and even willing to die for their faith, sharing the gospel for what they knew to be true into all the world. And we're talking about Peter and James and Andrew and Matthew and Thomas and uh, Bartholomew and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and, and Simon the Canaanite. But went out preaching the word of God. It's what transforms and changes a slave trader to pen one of the most greatest hymns ever sung, John Newton. And amazing grace. This is what changes us, changes us. It's what inspires men and women to travel all over the world to share the gospel of grace, putting themselves in harm's way. It's what helps endure people going through their persecutions and their own sufferings. And we've got a board out the back there with a couple of different things on there. We've got the Voice of the Martyrs and we've also got the Barnabas Aid um, magazines well worth reading if you want to be encouraged in your own faith and in your own walk pick one up at least it puts our own struggles into perspective you know but it's what inspires people to do those things to live those lives for any gain for any gain do you think there was any gain here we go the prosperity gospel being preached in so many charismatic churches today i'd like to know how paul prospered it was decapitated for his faith Peter was traditionally understood to have been hung upside down. James was pierced through with a sword. You know, 
all these individuals gave up everything for the sake of the gospel. This is the new birth. What changes a man like that? has to be a massive change. It just can't be a near-death experience that all of a sudden we've had a change of mind on how we want to live. This is an absolute, complete change. This is the new birth. The gospel of the kingdom of God is believed to, is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the saving of your soul. The new birth is the effect of the gospel believed in the heart. Final point. Man confounded by the answer. Well, perhaps you might feel a little bit like Nicodemus in the final verse here in verse 9. Nicodemus answered and said, how can these things be? I purposely wanted to leave it there as far as the, 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 our reading of the scripture was concerned. Here we have a Pharisee who perhaps had thought he'd lived his life well. He'd had worked a good work. He prepared his life for heaven. He reached the high point of the very effort of eternal life. He set the laws for others. He taught them how to live a virtuous life, a good life. He cared for his family, he honoured his parents, he tithed of all that he had, uh, kept the Sabbath day, washed the outside of the cup diligently, ensuring that in every way those who compared themselves among themselves would see him as one to aspire to. He bettered many of his peers in the work of God as a member of the Sanhedrin. He was, in his own eyes, just. And now he's told by this relatively young preacher who he acknowledges in the text as sent from God, that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I'm sure this was a stumbling stone for him. All that he'd ever believed and lived for was essentially an error. How can these things be? How can these things be? To think of the humility that it has to take a man to have lived his life to such an extent, to all of a sudden hear this, but also the humility that it would have taken him to just come to Jesus by night, to inquire of him. Perhaps you've thought that you've also lived a, a good life. I know I did. Better than most, uh, we behave with virtue. You behave with virtue with those around you. You lived honestly. You're not defrauding those that you trade with. Um, not scheming to steal or to cheat or to lie. Uh, you've worked hard. You've had a difficult life, but you've cared for those that are around you. You've certainly laid out your plan well, thought your plan good and fit for heaven, perhaps even deserved. But now you're as incredulous as Nicodemus. How can these things be? Born again, I must be born again. Your life's been all about you. Your righteousness is your righteousness. It's self-righteousness. You've, you've done that which was good in your own eyes. You've thought you've made your plans well, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And now you stumble at that stumbling stone. Jesus had suddenly become a rock of offence to you. How can a man be born when he is old? And the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, the Bible says. And, and here you are thinking, what foolishness is this? Born again? This is foolishness. Born again? How can a man be born when he is old? 1 Corinthians tells us, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, 
to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And there is perhaps a hardening of your arteries even now, that the gospel of his grace would not easily flow through the deep recesses of your heart and the way of peace will you not know. And the fear of God is not before your eyes. And we've got so many people that we walk by day by day by day. We speak to about the Lord Jesus Christ. You see them time and time again. But I've led my life well. I've done good, you know. I've done more good than bad. Certainly the Lord would allow me into heaven. But except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There is a condition to entering into the kingdom of God. You must be born again. You've considered the commandments of God and you think you've done well enough. No other gods before me. Surely what I think God should be like is what God is like. That's not another God, is it? Hmm. I'm not making a graven image, am I? I'm not creating a God out of my own likeness, am I? I'm not, I'm not like searching the things from other religions and putting them together and creating a, an idol, am I? That's not what I'm doing, is it? I haven't blasphemed him lately. I go to church most Sundays. I, I keep that day always free of work. Don't often separate myself from the assembling of the, of the brethren. How are we doing so far? Hey, I can't dishonour my parents if they're not alive anymore. So I'm good there, aren't I, for now? I haven't hated much or too often thought my life better served if so-and-so didn't actually exist. I haven't actually created murder there, have I? I haven't lusted toward the opposite sex lately, especially one that's outside of my marriage bond. I haven't stolen much. I haven't lied today. What's coveting anyway? Perhaps you've thought you've made your plans well and you compare yourself to that perfect law of liberty and you've found yourself have broken all, if not most, of those commandments. Then what? Jesus said you must be born again. You must be born again. You'll notice in this text something really interesting. In verse 3, Jesus says, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You know, notice it doesn't say he shall not. It doesn't say he shall not. It says he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. This isn't a permissive thing, but an impossibility. Unless a man is born of, again, born of the Spirit. Now, to be convinced of this, I need you to think of something. Now, speaking about God, this is the nature of God. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. In Job 15.15, he says, Yea, the the heavens are not clean in his sight. Job 4.18 says, And his angels he charges with folly. So here we have that he can't even have the eyes to even behold evil. The heavens aren't clean in his sight, and his angels he charges with folly. With respect to man... It says no good thing dwelling in him in Romans chapter 7 verse 18. That we're shaped in iniquity, conceived in sin in Psalm 51 5. That we are abominable, filthy. We drink in iniquity like water in Job 15 16. We're at minds with enmity with God in James 4 4. The thoughts of our heart is only evil continually in Genesis 6 5. Tell me logically then, 
when we look into the perfect law of God and we truly reflect on our own nature according to what is true rather than what we like to think of ourselves. Since there's such an infinite disparity between us and God, can we conceive of how such corruption in man can dwell eternally with an infinitely pure, holy God before we're changed into his likeness? Can he who is of purer eyes to behold iniquity dwell with it? Can he? Can, can the one in whose sight the heavens are unclean dwell with uncleanness itself? It can't happen. It, we cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You must be born again. This is not a change of action, but a change of heart that dispels the old to gain the new. It's not a near-death experience. I've mentioned that to you. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, ransomed for your sin and you believing it to be true. So my last thought. There has to be a complete alteration in your life and it's not something that you do. It's something that Jesus has done. And how do we acquire it? We acquire it by faith. We believe the gospel. We believe what's been told. But we don't believe in our heads, guys. We believe in our heart. It's here that matters. He knows our heart. And if that's not there just yet, then seek after Christ. The Bible says you, if you seek him diligently, you will find him. But the exciting news is this. If it delights you to converse with God here, it would be magnified infinitely with the sight of his glorious majesty hereafter. It will be magnified infinitely. If you love to commune with the saints on earth, it will be of the purest delight to commune with the angels and the spirits of just men made perfect in heaven. Nicodemus is given by Jesus a further explanation of the gospel in the coming verses, and we'll, we'll talk about that next week. But this, and beholding Jesus in, uh, in the few verses, in the few years to come, so when he's, he's watching Jesus, remember this is the beginning of his ministry, of, of our Lord's ministry, um, it, would, it, would, it would create a change in Nicodemus that he would desire Christ more than he desired his old life his old life um, so much so that together with Joseph of Arimathea he would roll the stone on his tomb we don't hear any more of Nicodemus in the Bible it's just found here in, in John's Gospel and the last point that we hear it about him is in, uh, is in chapter, chapter 19, 20 um, but it won't surprise me that, uh, that I'll meet a man in heaven so humbled by Christ and that uh, one who's given all his prior learning, all his governing authority, uh, all his societal status, and even his wealth, and he would have said with Paul, uh, yea, doubtless, I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but done, that I may win Christ. Oh, I won't be surprised to see Nicodemus there. I'll look forward to it forward to meeting him but he understood something he understood something that we all need to understand and know you must be born again you must be born again let's pray father we thank you dear lord for your word
We thank you, dear Father, that it can create within us a pure heart, a clean heart, and that it can indeed quicken us to eternal life. And we ask you, dear Father, that you would continue to do that work amongst us, do that work within our own lives. Make us your children, dear Father, into your likeness. Continue doing that work. And I just ask, dear Lord, and pray, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that are not yet born again, that they would seek you with all their heart, that they would ask you to come into their lives, that they may indeed be born again, that they will be changed. I pray, dear Lord, that the gospel will have its work within their hearts and lives. Be with us, dear Lord, in the coming week. And should we come across one, dear Father, who knows you not, I pray, dear Lord, that we may share the hope of Jesus Christ to them. Let us not keep this to ourselves, dear Father. And give us the boldness, dear Lord, and the courage that we need to share of your love and your truth to a world, dear Lord, without it. And we praise you in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.